New ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Dominic Young. Dominic is a longtime newspaper executive in the UK who has been involved in many industry discussions, initiatives, lobbying, and sometimes arguments revolving around rights. He's now an entrepreneur focused on business models for digital media, and he has a long perspective on the intersection between law, policy, and the real world. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's absolutely great to be here and talk about something I'm really enjoying thinking about right now. Salespeople have been using the term AI for the past few years, and they've been applying it to pretty much anything automated. And for purposes of our discussion, that isn't AI, it's automation. What we're going to be talking about today is generative AI, which is a category of algorithm that generates new outputs based on the data they've been trained on. It uses a type of deep learning called generative adversarial networks to create new content. This involves two neural networks, a generator and a discriminator. A generator creates new data and the discriminator evaluates the data. They work together, the generator improving outputs based upon the feedback from the discriminator until it generates content that is indistinguishable from the data it was trained with. It has application to image, text, and audio. You've had a career thinking about what people can do with our stuff, what we can do with our own content, and what the law does or should say about all this and the interactions between the old media world and the ever-evolving digital environment. One of the few things that everyone agrees about is that generative AI will be very disruptive, but digital disruption was pretty disruptive. So maybe people can be smarter about this AI's disruption, maybe get a do-over or makeover. What lessons do you think we should remember as we look at the brave new world that is headed our way? It's a very good question. And I'm old enough to remember a previous generation of excitement about new technology that was going to transform the world, be very disruptive, and where it was going to represent huge new opportunities, which was the the advent of what you might call the commercial internet overall, which involved a lot of automation, a lot of technology sweeping up lots of content, using it for things like generating search engines and search engine output, all of which was amazing and nobody wants to, to, to stand in the way of it. And I think the lessons we learned from that process and the way in which people responded to it and what we're currently seeing with generative AI, which is suddenly creating a huge amount of excitement and attention, is worth reflecting on. I think there's lessons to be learned from, from that process and what happens. Let's look back and look about at the search engine piece that that actually has the most application to what, we, what we're dealing with right now. I, th- I said it's interesting because it was similarly a clash between old and new. It was something genuinely brilliant and new that was coming along and it was forcing old industries like the news industry, the industry I worked in at the time and, and still, to consider this new thing against what everything they previously kind of took for granted and assumed to be true. And largely that made it sound like they were at the, at the early stages, in some ways, kind of quite opposed to, to some of this change, to some of this new new use of their material. Right. But actually, I think the way things turned out, you know, as with the with the passage of time, one one thing I would suggest is is that the lesson is everyone should calm down and they should wait and see how things evolve rather than assuming it is going to evolve in in one particular direction and literally legislating for that particular outcome. Let's have a proper 
debate about this and let, let's see what actually happens versus versus what people are predicting. Some legal proposals that have been made in the UK around something they call text and data mining, which is really a default permission to create data sets and use them for training AIs. I think that phrase is interesting because mining is something mm. that businesses do to raw materials and they turn those raw materials into into something more valuable. But typically mining in the real world is something that comes with all sorts of conditions and permissions. If you want to mine a mineral in a country, you need permission from the government and from whoever owns the land. And there's probably rules about the way you do it, environmental impacts, how much money you give to who and so on. If the industry is going to be mining our content, it needs to be doing it on the basis of clear agreement and, and, and proper terms, in my view. And I think we need to be having a debate about this rather than rushing to legislation in pursuit of a utopian but imaginary outcome. Because what the lesson of the year 2000 is, is the imaginary outcome that people thought was going to happen doesn't turn out that way. And, and, and the legislation actually plays a role in steering it in a different direction. Well, what's interesting is that Plato, when talking about writing, said that people who invent something new, create a new tool or technology are not necessarily the people who are going to understand the social impact of those inventions. And about writing in particular, he said, I actually copied the quote down because I think it has application. If men learn this, it will implant forgetfulness in their souls. They will cease to exercise memory because they will rely on that which is written, calling things to remembrance no longer from within themselves, but by means of external marks, a recipe not for memory, but for reminder. So I think we all dealt with writing pretty well. And it's an interesting, if we think about technology, you know, and how it has changed things and to your point, you know, calm down. However, I think that there is value in talking about it, which is why we're having this conversation. And to your point also, it seems like we are in this hyperbolic phase where people think the sky is falling and other people think it's going to be the best of all possible worlds. Where do you fall on that hair on fire continuum, would you say? I think I think everyone's very overexcited about it right now, and there's an awful lot of predictions being made, which which may or may not turn out to be true. But I think everyone can afford to to calm down a little bit. Okay. Whether it's true that generative AI is going to steal jobs from creatives and journalists, I think remains to be seen. I think we can all see that the output at the moment is is a long way short of being consistently perfect. But also whether or not there's some positive aspects to that, we need to wait and see. So I, I think we're we're kind of in that that sort of shock of the new, and there's an awful lot of hype going on about it. The real interest in is around the question of the actual content and rights. Copyright was the area in which I used to get involved a lot on in terms of policy and lobbying and, and the kind of practical realities of it. And mm. the way in which copyright works on the internet has been a, a, a consistent theme throughout my career. And I think now's not a bad time to stand back and ask ourselves in relation to generative AI, what about the rights of the people who create well, the content in the first place? Exactly. Let's unpack a bit of what goes into a generative AI and how that relates to pre-existing IP and what it's being used for is a secondary consideration. But just the the start of it, if we talk about these large data sets, where does the data set come from? It's not just this mythical, beautiful data set that everybody says, yeah, have at it. So if we're thinking about journalism, because that's your area, where did the data that trained this generative AI, where did that come from? Well, someone asked ChatGPT the other day, and it said that it got it from scraping a whole load of publicly available news sources like 
big big name newspapers and and news sources so what that means is scraping or crawling mm. is a process whereby a computer like google's computer or, or somebody goes and visits a website and basically copies everything it finds there and follows the links on that website and copies everything it finds all over the website into its own database so for example when google do that for search they're doing it so that when you type a search query into google it can come up with the the relevant results and also give you the relevant snippet so you, the same article might come up twice in google search results but if the search terms were different the little snippet it shows you will will be different so any search engine will say we need to keep copies of the content so that we can create this service that is that is relevant to the user and i think most people who want to see their content in search will say well that's fine that's something that's beneficial yeah. To well, me, that's that's the way it needs to work. Can I jump in here? Because yeah. this it's publicly available so that people see advertisements. It's not publicly available. There are paywalls. People get paid to create this stuff. Exactly. Therein lies the clue as to how this all gets very sort of complicated very, very quickly. It's partly because the nature of the internet and the way it works is that stuff gets copied all the time. When you display something on your browser, on your screen, there's a copy of it sitting inside your computer and it stays there for a period of time until it eventually goes out of your cache. So copying is innate. And so for a lot of people looking at a web page, whether it's a computer or a human doing it, is, is as benign as looking at the page in a book. Right. What's actually happening in the background is multiple copies of, of this content are being created all over the place within large-scale databases like the ones that search engines have within local computers like the ones that you and I have, and also in lots of other places too. I was working in newspapers. We did a project to try to detect all the different crawlers copying our content, and we mm. detected lots of them. And there were only a few that we knew who they were and what they were doing. But even more worryingly, there were quite a few crawlers where we knew they existed, but we couldn't detect them in our systems. In other words, they were doing quite a good job of hiding themselves and being indistinguishable from humans. Hmm. So we knew that there were lots and lots of copies of our content being created. We didn't know who they were being created by or what for. And I suppose that for me is at the heart of the question that we all ought to be considering now. Does the fact that your data exists in someone else's system, is that something you ought to be aware of? And should it be up to you to decide whether or not that's okay and whether or not the use they're making of it is okay? Copyright law says that it's up to you. When you create something, anything, whether you, you know, the email you write, the photo you take, if you created it as a human being, you automatically have copyright. It belongs to you. Right. And what copyright means is you have the right to say whether other people can have copies of it and what they can do with it. That's the, that's the heart of, of what copyright means. So it's quite fundamental. Most laws have certain exceptions that allow certain things to happen without having to ask people first. But other than that, you need to be asked, should that be a principle which guides the creation of data sets for AI or not? I suppose this is the question that is interesting to debate. Well, certainly, if you think about these things being businesses, that they're creating a business. So I know you're talking about journalism. I know for art, if they then charge a fee for people to use this generative AI to do a portrait of myself or what have you, and I, I'm adding it up and isn't this fun? I, I, or I can put some prompts in there. Isn't that great? But I just have to pay this little, what, $5 or whatever amount. However, the business that's getting all that money trained their AI on art. It was produced by people yep. who were not compensated. There was an article in Wired where they said, yes, but if you removed one of the artist's pieces, it didn't really affect the end product. So eh, no big deal. It's a scale issue. At scale, 
if everybody said, you know what, gee whiz, no thanks, then you don't have a generative AI because it does require a very large data set to train. So to journalism, if every professional organization said, you know what, no thanks, we don't want to participate, the output wouldn't be the same. No, it wouldn't. But it's possible that if if an AI company approached a newspaper company and said, we'd like to have access to all your data, let's do a deal, a deal would get done. It's not to say that, that, that this has to be capable of being sort of appropriated without permission, otherwise right. nothing will work. It's a question of saying, on what terms should that happen? And if someone wants to say no, I think that's all right. My position is pretty clear. I think we we should be able to say yes or no to how our content gets used. We ought to be able to have transparency to see whether our content's included in that and what it's being used for and to withdraw it or request compensation for it. My view is that this assumption that it's okay to just help yourself to anything that is that it's possible to see, this publicly available means people can go to websites and see it. I don't think that means it's okay to treat that as a resource. I also think that people often talk about, they talk about fair use or fair dealing mm. when they're talking about the output. So to your point about, about images, you cannot recognize any part of the output as a thing right. that this is the law this would is see as, as a copyright infringement. Right. right, right. But actually, that doesn't mean that all this copying that happens privately behind closed doors inside the, the system that was training the AI didn't need a license either. I think it does need a license. No. If you're going to create copies of things and then use them commercially or even non-commercially, you need permission. So if the output is based on a on a on an infringement, the output itself doesn't have to be infringing for 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 it to be a, a problem. If you look back to the British Statute of Anne, which was in 1709, Right. That was a sort of enactment of what you might call the first modern copyright law, which said authors have ownership over their work. Mm. And the reason that law was written, and they used this very colourful language in the preamble to the law, was because printers were stealing all the all the upside. The person who provided the paper and the ink and the printing press and the binding had to spend a lot of money on paper, ink, printing press and binding on every single copy of the book. But the words they printed on the page, once they bought them from the author, even though they represented all the value of the book in the eyes of the reader, they represented none of the cost. There was no right. additional cost for every additional well, copy. And so that's why copyright law got created. So so this this idea that efficiency is is a is, well is a this goal. is this it's well efficiency as the only value. If you create too much efficiency, you remove the incentive to to be creative. So they introduce this well, this friction, this idea of intellectual property, it's a bit of a weird concept, isn't it? You know, it's right. not something you can feel or touch, but it means that you can't do something. It, it deliberately made it less efficient. Right. Prior to this conversation, you and I have talked about government not really being in a place to regulate the industry and maybe it wouldn't be a good idea anyway because they get it wrong. They don't have enough knowledge and they anticipate something and legislate very specifically against that. But could there be some sort of ethical value like Asimov's three rules for robotics that that could create a an understanding to your point of the value? Because I don't know that business has proved itself to be a particularly good actor in regard to societal impact of things. Businesses generally. Yeah, well, I mean, in terms of the brave new world of, let's say, social media, and we look at meta, 
and we look at what happened with Instagram and their own internal research on how it affected young people, or we think about the nature of the recommendation engines and how they tend to make people more and more extreme. And because they have a business need to increase engagement, that goes to their shareholder value and engagement increases with certain you know, negatives and paranoias, if you will, that you yeah. create extremists, that there is not necessarily a, a motivator to temper that, or we're trusting a lot of business to temper it. You know, to your point, what's the motivator for a business to say, you know what, you're right. We really should ask these people's permission. We don't have <laughs> blockchain. Tracking rights and permissions is a nightmare at this point. Maybe in the future it won't be, but currently it is. So what's their incentive? Okay, so you, this is you've opened a gigantic can of worms here, which speaks a lot to various things I've been involved with in the past. And to your point about business being good or bad actors, actually, that is an area where the law is substantially influential on businesses. I think I think what we see currently with lots of businesses online is, as you say, they've got shareholder interests above everything else, and they are not really very restrained by by laws which would have restrained pre-internet businesses doing doing similar things. Well, sure. Um, if you think of publishing and responsibility, right? Exactly. And so without wanting to get into the full depth of controversy that this subject sometimes stirs up, I think we can look back to the fact that back in the year 2000, in many parts of the world, various governments created laws that exempted internet businesses from laws that would otherwise apply to them for reasons that made perfect sense. The basic reason was those internet businesses quite rightly pointed out that it's the users of that service who are creating content and putting it on the service. And so they can't be responsible for that content in the way that, say, a newspaper editor could, because they couldn't possibly know the provenance of the content that was being published on, on their platform. And so laws got amended to say, we're going to remove the liability of these internet businesses for all of these things that traditionally publishers have been liable for as a matter of practicality, because otherwise they'll just find themselves in, in breach of the law millions and millions of, of times a day. It'll be impossible for these businesses to thrive. So that made a lot of sense. The argument made a lot of sense. But the difficulty comes that in that case, nobody is restraining these things that otherwise would have been restrained by, by editors and lawyers within publishers. So an awful lot of stuff gets published now for which nobody's really accountable. And if you add to that the fact that the principal commercial motivation of businesses on the internet who are not charging, which is most of them, mm. is to generate as much user data interaction and ad revenue as possible, then you can see that the incentives of the business do not align well with the incentives of the mass of us. And we see I... bad outcomes. The argument in Europe went, this internet thing is going to be an amazing new opportunity. It's going to be massive for society, but it demands a new approach. It simply isn't compatible with the way the world used to work. And if we don't create that new approach now, it'll be sort of killed at birth and it will never be able to thrive. Right, it will never survive. And, and, right. the, and the threat was... The implied threat was, and there wasn't the explicit threat was, if we don't act in Europe, then we're handing the whole opportunity to the Americans. And right. that would never do, would it? Right? right. And and what happened was because of this sort of super immunity from the law, basically Google and Facebook were able to be what they are because, right. because they simply don't 
the law does not apply to them. Right. Where's the European equivalent? I'm not noticing it anywhere in Europe. The, they, it turned out the opportunity was not something w- that was being constrained by the existence of these laws in different places. It was being constrained on, on many other fronts as well. And I don't think we've learned the lesson of that because the, the hype around AI is exactly the same. It's going to be worth trillions of dollars. It's going to be this huge opportunity. It's going to change society. There's a massive economic opportunity. We 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 can't stand in its way. We have to we have to make sure that we can maximize a sort of our share, our national share, our international share, whatever. It's based on a dream, and the dream turns out not to be quite as lovely as people imagine. If we go back to the practicality of asking permission, the practicality argument gets you out of all sorts of things. So the question is, having gone through this with the, you know, from 2000, should people be a little less willing to give a practicality exemption? Well, the difficulty of practicality exemptions is that once they're made, the incentive to make what was previously impractical practical goes away (laughs) well exactly so 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 you would stand on the on the side of gee whiz actually i don't care that it's hard for you to track down rights why don't you build something that makes it easy because you gotta do it is that kind of where you land in my career having noticed this issue have have been involved in a couple of projects specifically to address this on a on a technical level Hmm. which never really made it to kind of critical mass i think because they did not align well with the incentives of at least half of the the stakeholders one of them was a much more nuanced and this is going back a long time by the way so yeah technology has to some extent superseded it, but a much more nuanced way of communicating crawler permissions to crawlers so that websites, you you say publishers have terms of use, which is true, but it's difficult for a crawler to read terms of use. So the idea was, can you express that in a way that the machine can understand and then comply with? Here's what the publisher rules are before you crawl their site look at these rules and decide if you want to crawl it or not. But if you do, you've got to be compliant with the rules. That was a project which would have addressed a big part of the practicality, but it would also have created cost and friction for certain Mm. players in the ecosystem. So, you know, for for whatever reason, that one didn't fly. There's been a project that I was involved with and that that came out of the British government called the Copyright Hub, the idea of which was to, to make copyright capable of functioning a bit like the domain name system does. In other words, mm. when you find a piece of content, you can look up the responsible person, whoever owns it, and you can query their system to find out what permissions you can and, and can't have. You're ambitious, but the start of a project that could technically have led to a, a a reduction in the kind of entropy and chaos around rights. I think more projects like that are most certainly needed. But if you create incentives to never change the status quo because it's making the biggest stakeholders very rich, then it's difficult to create that evolution. So it's strange to me that every single aspect of dealing with content has become orders of magnitude cheaper and more efficient on the internet other than identifying ownership and and trading rights. Funny, funny that, isn't it? Yes. Funny (laughs) that. That that would be the thing that wouldn't work. Do you think that, I mean, right now, ChatGPT can't even write a good Valentine's Day card, but looking ahead, (laughs) could it, in terms of output, could it be the utopian ideal for bias-free journalism? Is this, I mean, in terms of output, could it be good? Well, let's, yeah, let's get onto the optimistic side of all this. A couple of things. One is, this is a interesting technology. It's quite early. And like many, many technologies that are predicted to have a massive and game-changing impact on the world, it will probably settle into a, a, a less hyperbolic place where it is a useful technology, which is used in a variety of ways, which which are benign and positive. So I think at the minute, there's an awful lot of scenario predicting about where this might go. And I think it, it will probably end up somewhere different from what people are predicting right now. But also, let's think about journalism in particular. Hmm. I think there's two things about journalism we should remember. One is, 
journalism is kind of the present tense of the world. However good an AI gets, it is not going to be able to fly to Turkey and Syria and look at what's going on there and talk to people and take photographs and report the primary happenings in the world. It will be good at then sort of digesting and reporting whatever that primary reporter did, but it's going to be very difficult for it to replace that. So journal journalism is something that, that exists in a particular part of the media and entertainment spectrum, mm. where I think it will always be possible to carve out something that really uniquely only humans can do. But also the thing about journalism is it needs to be trustworthy. It needs provenance. Even if a newspaper or a news website was using AI to generate some of its stories, doubtless they will. It's another tool. They're already, they're already doing it for sports, useful to, just Right. <laughs> the, those, those sites are published by someone, and that someone is, is usually a person. There's an editor. There's somebody, an actually named person who's responsible. There's a company, an organization. They are accountable for that content to their users and, and in the law. And I think without provenance, it's dangerous to trust news. We've certainly seen, you know, the, many downsides of that without AI being there to help. And I think if you want to create trust in news, provenance and accountability will become important. So an AI-generated story that's 95% accurate can still be wrong on, on an awful lot of the, the, the key points. Hmm. So I think journalism can move towards higher trust, more accountability as a way of creating and highlighting the value of, of journalists doing that primary reporting and, and, and generating that that news. AI can't replace journalists. Well, it's interesting. The role, the what the journalist is doing, though, could be very different. It could be creating, wouldn't necessarily be writing the article, you know, could be collecting well, facts on I mean, the ground and feeding it in. You can have somebody who's responsible for asking questions and obtaining information. Right. But I think it's always been that way. There was an apocryphal story about an editor in the company I used to work for who was shouting at a reporter for trying to write a story saying, why are you, why are you writing the story? I've got sub-editors to do that. Different humans were doing it. This reporter I was see. meant to be out there getting... Now, whether or not that's true, who knows? But, but most newsrooms have multiple people involved in the generation of a story. Right now, there's newsrooms who are seeing the news coming in. They're getting news from dozens and dozens of sources from news agencies like AP and Reuters, from their own reporters on the ground, from, 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 from social media and the internet. And all of that is creating information that is feeding into the story they eventually write. My father was a journalist in days when you typed your content on paper and then someone marked it up with a pencil, handed it to somebody else who typed it up in hot metal type and put it into a printing press. The, the technology around journalism and the ways in which journalists and technology team up together to create the final output has always been something evolving. And AI can play a part in that without undermining the value proposition or the importance of journalism. I don't think it's necessarily a looming threat to the whole sector. On the Wall Street Journal, the FT, I'm going to have the ideal summary. So you only have to read this one thing, super digestible, and I've crawled it and it's on their sites. And, you know, so, right. when I so, so we need to debate this at both ends, you know, at one end, is that crawling okay? Is this something we're happy for the world to sort of authorize on our behalf that the, the people can do this and take our stuff? But is it okay to crawl our emails? They all exist in various people's servers. Is that okay? Would you, how comfortable would people feel about that? Hmm. I think there's a debate needed about that, about the base on which that happens. But at the other end, if if you can't create a product that has sufficient appeal for, for people to actually want your version of, of your product, well, then, you know, that, that is a that is a challenge. If, if, if it's a question of your product being a, a commoditized product that can't really be distinctive and that an AI can easily compete with, that does create questions around, around 
around the nature of the product too. We're not well, except entitled. to your point though, it needs the people out there doing this stuff. It needs somebody else to do the work because they don't have humans on the ground. And yet how it's delivered, it's become commoditized as opposed to a value add. So that's that becomes the rub because it's expensive to have people all over the place writing, collecting information. And if the end user, me in my house, just says, well, I just want a summary, but that summary can't exist unless other people are paid, that becomes the trick, doesn't it? Yes, but it is a version of what's always been true. News has always been summarized by others in, in various places. So yes, it is most definitely an issue, but I'm not sure it's specifically an AI issue. And the real question is, what news source do you choose? What is the one that you default to because you like it, you trust it, you enjoy it, and you 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 want to go to that one as 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 your as your one of your favorites? Is it just a question of the commoditized nature of its outputs or its very low cost, or is there something else? It raises questions around media business models as well. There's right. as much negative pressure on media products caused by the need to to generate advertising revenue as a primary source of income as by anything that AI is threatening to do. Media business models need to be much more aligned, in my view, with audiences, and audiences need to be the key stakeholders. And I'm not sure that's, that's always true right now. I just want to do a quick summary. In terms of looking at the rules, you're saying, look, there are rules out there and this new brand new generative AI needs to abide by the real rules, we shouldn't write exceptions based on the practicality of getting permissions. Is that correct? Yes. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking our production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open, and of course, all of you, the members of our audience. Thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next. <laughs>